all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens and MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Parents always have lots of questions for their child's pediatrician, starting from infancy all the way to the teenage years. So today we're going to discuss some of the most common questions that I get asked as a pediatrician. Of course, we would love to hear from you and answer any and all of your questions. So please give us a call. Share your comments. Call us um, at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email at kids at mpbonline.org. So one of the first topics that I was going to discuss today is fever. I feel like fever is always a... um, question parents have. When should I bring them in if they have a fever? Um, What do I need to do if they have a fever? What does the fever mean? Are they going to have a seizure? Lots and lots of questions about fevers. So I thought I thought that would be a good place to start discussing fevers. So, you know, fever is going to be caused by some sort of infection. Most of the time, a fever is going to be caused by a virus that can be like the flu virus, um, RSV. There's several tons of viruses, especially during the summertime that we get exposed to. Also, you want to make sure that it's not caused by a bacterial infection. You know, kids get ear infections, kids get pneumonia, kids get skin infections. There's all different kinds of bacterial infections as well. Most commonly, though, it's going to be caused by a virus. A fever is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, that's one thing that people always worry about fevers. But honestly, it's a good thing. It's a it's a good sign that the body is trying to fight off the infection. The problem with a fever is it makes you feel bad. You know, it is your body revving up trying to fight off this infection. So for that, your child is going to feel bad. They're going to feel uncomfortable. It increases their heart rate. You may notice that they also breathe a little bit faster when they have a fever. And that is all normal reactions to a fever. It also, when you have the fever, it tends to make them lose a little more fluids than normal. So they tend to get a little easier dehydrated with fever. So it's always important to make sure they're drinking lots and lots of fluids. Again, a fever is not necessarily bad. It's the way that the body is fighting off the infection. But we like to manage that fever, and we need to know when we need to be, that fever needs to be addressed by a doctor. So the first thing is the definition of fever. You know, 100.4 is what we call fever. You know, a temperature of 99, low 100 doesn't necessarily mean you have fever, but it still will make the child feel bad. But 100.4 is kind of our across the board what we determine as fever. There's different ways that you can check for a fever. You know, a digital thermometer is going to be the best way. Um, And honestly, if it's a baby, rectally, it's going to be the best way. A lot of people are very hesitant and nervous about checking the temperature that way, but it is going to be the most accurate and give you a core temperature for a baby. Once they hit age three, age four, it's okay to check the temperature in the mouth axillary or under the armpit is not the best way to check it because that's not going to give us a core temperature. It's a good way to just kind of screen and see if they may have fever. But ideally, 
putting the thermometer in their mouth is going to give you the best idea of what their core body temperature is and truly if they have a fever or not. Um, there's lots and lots of new thermometers out there where you can put it in the ear and it can measure the tympanic membrane. Um, there's also forehead thermometers. Those are not the most reliable, especially if they're younger and under six months of age. Um, again, you know, using a digital thermometer is going to be the best. But I always tell parents it's not a bad thing to have to just kind of screen and see if you feel like they're having a temperature. Um, but if that shows that they have a fever, go get a digital thermometer and check it so we can get a better idea of what the temperature actually is. So, you know, 100.4 is what we determine as fever. Reasons you would need to call your doctor for a fever. Because a lot of times... Like I said, it's just the body fighting off the infection. So number one, and most importantly, if your kid looks sick, you know, kids, fever can make them kind of um, wimpy looking and not feel very good. But you also know what your kid looks like and if when they look sick. So definitely if they look sick, take them to the doctor. Um, fever greater than 104, that's a pretty high temperature. It doesn't necessarily mean anything bad is going to happen, but it's a pretty high fever, and they probably should get evaluated by a doctor. Again, this is Morgan McLeod. We're talking about common questions asked to the pediatrician. So give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. It's one eight seven seven mpb ring one 672 so when to definitely take your kid in is if you have a child that is under three months of age and has a fever. Um, most of the children by then have had at least one round of vaccines, but maybe not. So definitely if they have not had their vaccines or if they're under three months, we definitely recommend being evaluated by a doctor. If you have a kid that's about two years old or younger and has a fever for more than 24 to 48 hours, they definitely need to be evaluated. And any kid that's had a fever for more than three days needs to be checked in just to make sure. Um, if they have a seizure, definitely. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. But, you know, uh, seizures, sometimes people are more prone to having seizures when they have a fever. And so if that's the case, especially if it's the first time that's happened, I definitely think you need to go get checked out by a doctor. So how do you treat fever? You know, we've got Tylenol, we have Motrin, or acetaminophen is Tylenol. Ibuprofen is the other, is the generic name for Motrin. You can alternate those about every six, um, every three hours so that they're getting something every three hours, but you're still spacing the actual Tylenol dose every six and the Motrin every six, trying to keep that fever down um, just to make the child feel better so that they'll be able to eat and drink and keep those fluids up so they won't get dehydrated with that fever. You can also do a cool bath. You don't want it to be too cold because then the cold cold will make them shiver, which, again, increases their body's metabolic needs. And we don't necessarily need to do that. But a cool bath is fine to sponge them off. That's great. So keeping that fever down will make your child feel better. Um, the seizures. That is a very big question I feel like we get asked all the time is, is my child going to have a seizure with this fever? So febrile seizures are relatively common, um, and they can happen starting at around age six months all the way up to being a five-year-old. Um, they tend to run in families. So you may notice that uh, if you know one person that has a, had a fever seizure or febrile seizure, as we call them, um, you may know that their cousin has it or their brother or their sister or somebody like that has it. 
Uh, if it's the first time you have a seizure, I definitely think you should get evaluated by the doctor. Um, some other reasons, once, once you've had one, the likelihood that you could have another one is pretty high, especially if you had your first one when you were younger than one years old. There's a 50% chance that they'll probably have another one. So if they have another one, but they've, you know, if this is their second or third one, it's okay to just make sure you treat them at home. I mean, it's okay to treat them at home, just keeping them in a safe environment and doing seizure, seizure precautions. But if it's the first one, they definitely do need to be evaluated. Some other reasons to go to the doctor with a, a febrile seizure is if it only is one area that shakes. So like if, you know, normally people that have seizures, their whole body shakes. But if there's only one specific area, like an like the left arm or the right arm only, um, that's concerning that it could be something that's causing that seizure other than the fever. If it's a prolonged seizure, so greater than five to 10 minutes, I would definitely want them to be evaluated as well. And then the other thing is if they have back-to-back seizures, because that's, again, kind of like having a prolonged seizure, and they definitely need to be evaluated. Um, the fever, it doesn't matter necessarily how high the temperature is to cause a seizure. It's more how fast the temperature rises. So just because they have 104 fever doesn't mean they're going to have a fever seizure. People have temperatures of 104 all the time and never have seizures. It's more how quickly it rises. So um, lots about fever. It's very, very common. Um, But the biggest thing is their age. You know, that plays a big factor into what we need to do about it. Because if they're a little one, especially if they haven't had their vaccines, they need to be evaluated immediately. Otherwise, a lot of times you can just manage it at home, support them through it with some Tylenol and Motrin, make sure they're drinking lots of fluids. And most of the time they'll do okay. We'd love to hear your comments. Please give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring one 672 7464 We'll continue talking more about some common questions for your pediatrician, but we'd love to hear your questions as well. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. And today we're talking about common questions for your pediat- uh, common questions for your pediatrician about your children. We first talked about fever. We'd love to hear your comments if you've had any um, if you have any specific questions about fever, or if you've had any um, problems with your kids having fever, and maybe even febrile seizures. We'd love to hear for your hear from you. You can give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can also send us an email at kids at mpbonline.org. 
So the next topic that we get a lot of questions about um, is colds. And what do you do about a cold? What do you do when your child has a cold? Um, Most of our colds are caused by viruses, and you don't necessarily need any antibiotics. And that, you know, tends to be the first thing that we do is, oh, I'm sick, I need an antibiotic. But really, if you give your body some time, most likely they're going to fight off the infection unless they have a reason to not be able to fight it off. So as you know, if you have children, especially children that have been in daycare, colds are very, very common. Um, Happen in the first two years of life, sometimes every month, but on average, kids get about eight to 10 colds during those first two years of life. Um, So again, most of them are caused by viruses, and we're going to treat them supportively. There's lots of different things that you can do for it. Um, you know, just some saline in the nose, sucking the con- uh, with a bulb suction, sucking that congestion out, that runny nose, keeping those airways cleared out. That's about all we can do for our little ones. There are a few other things that we can do as you get a little bit older, and we'll talk about those in just a second. It looks like we have a caller, so we'll go um, first to our caller, and then we'll get back to that. So we have Craig in Biloxi. Go ahead, Craig. Yes, uh, I heard you run through some of the uh, things that you do with uh with a fever for a child. One is how long of a duration do they have to have before you take them to the doctor of a fever? And two is what food and what liquids you give them. Yeah, those are great questions. So if they are under three months of age, I think you need to take them immediately to the doctor. Um, Once they hit three months, you can kind of watch them a little bit at home. Um, As long as the fever's not rising too high, you know, like I said, over 104, I definitely think they need to be evaluated. But um, once they get a little bit older, for kids under two, you can watch them for at least a day at home. Um, But once you hit more than 24 to 36 hours, I think you definitely need to go get them checked out. Okay. For our older kids, you know, four and five-year-olds, things uh, as they get a little bit older, you may could even push that to about three days. Um, You know, a lot of that you can manage at home. And you can tell, too, as you're checking your child's temperature, it may start off 102, 103, but by about day two, day three, it's down to 101 or 100. And you can see that the fever is coming down. Um, but, yeah, after three days, everybody needs to be checked out. Every, um, after three days of fever, everybody needs to be checked out. Now, what to give, you know, Tylenol and Motrin are our two most common medicines that we give to keep the fever down. Um, so that's acetaminophen and ibuprofen. We don't recommend using aspirin in children, um, especially kids that have the flu, because there is a certain illness that you can be associated with giving aspirin to children with the flu, and it can cause um, liver toxicity. So we definitely don't recommend aspirin, but Tylenol and Motrin are totally fine. And like I said, you can give alternate those to where they're getting something every three hours and keeping that fever down. With regards to food and drink, you know, a lot of kids when they have fever don't want to eat, and that's okay. So I always just tell, tell parents, make sure you keep them hydrated. So um, water or Pedialyte uh, Pedialyte for our little ones. Pedialyte's also real salty. I don't know if anybody's ever tried it out there, but it's not the best tasting. So as they get older and develop more taste buds, they're not going to be as good at drinking the Pedialyte, so you can try to do some Gatorade. You don't want to stick to only Pedialyte or only Gatorade. You kind of want to switch them back and forth. So a little bit of water here, a little bit of Pedialyte, kind of alternate them back and forth. Tea? Can you give them tea? Um, it's probably not the best. Um, you know, tea has caffeine in it and caffeine is a natural diuretic. So that's going to tend to make you lose a little more fluids and you're already losing fluids with your fever. 
Um, so it's, prob- right. it's probably not the best idea. Yeah. Um, can you do a pinch test for de- on their skin for dehydration you on can- children? You can. It's. I mean, it's not the most reliable, but um, that's what we call the skin turgor. It's how you know strong your skin is, and it is an indicator. But usually, by the time you've lost that skin turgor, you're pretty dehydrated. Yeah. So that's not one of the best in kids. Um, Some things that we tell parents to look for, especially in babies, is tears. So um, one of the first things that the babies lose when they're starting to get dehydrated is you notice they don't make as many tears when they cry. The other thing is wet diapers. So kids, you want them to have at least three wet diapers in a 24-hour period. So once you see those wet diapers starting to drop off, you know that they are tending to get, they're getting closer to dehydration. Oh, that's that's a good one. Yeah, so the skin is not, I mean, the skin is definitely a sign, but like I said, usually by that point, you're pretty dehydrated by then. So the tears and the diapers are usually what we try to go by. Okay, I can't think of anything else. Yeah, well, give us a call back if you think of anything else, and thank you for your call. Okay, thank you. Um, So this is uh, Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod. We're talking about... Common questions for your pediatrician. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Please call us with your comments or any of your questions. One eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So earlier we were talking about colds and how they are very common. Like I said, um, kids under two can get about eight to ten colds over that time. Some even get about one a month, especially if you're in daycare. Uh, most of the time, they are caused by cold, uh, viruses, and so viruses are very easily passed from one person to another. If somebody coughs or sneezes and then doesn't wash their hands and touches something, and then somebody else and comes touches that, very, very quickly spread. So what can we do for colds? If your child's younger than three months, again, that's kind of our, you know, two to three months, anything younger than that, definitely probably needs to go be seen by a pediatrician, be evaluated. Because something that causes a cold in an adult may actually cause a little one to get more sick. And the reason that is, is because, you know, as adults, we're up, we're walking, we're moving, we're coughing, we're able to clear a lot of those secretions and things in our lungs and in our nasal passages. Little babies, they have a hard time doing that. They can't really cough. They're not up and moving. Um, The other thing is everything's a lot smaller in babies, including their airways. So they're a lot more likely to get plugged up with all those secretions that we can easily cough up and move around. So babies tend to get a little bit sicker than adults would. Particularly, I'm sure a lot of you have heard of the infection RSV or respiratory syncytial virus. We see it a lot in the fall and the winter. Um, it's known for doing that, for just causing a little cold in an adult, but it can make a baby get really, really sick and wheezing and sometimes even end up in the hospital. So if they're under three months, definitely need to go get checked out. Otherwise, most of the time you can just take care of that at home. Um, like I said, you can use the saline drops for the nose, sucking that nasal congestion out with either a bulb suction. There's also all kinds of little newer little um, devices and contraptions that they have to help get some of that out. Um, if you're older than six months, you can try a little Benadryl um, or any antihistamine like Zyrtec. Uh, we don't like to do that. It doesn't work as well for colds as it does for allergies and other symptoms, um, other reasons to have the nasal congestions and runny nose. But it is okay to try a little Benadryl, but wait till they're at least six months. Um, again, if they're having a fever, Tylenol and Motrin, always keep that fever down. 
Um, if they're older than one, you can do honey. And honey actually works really, really well. Um, it, it works as a cough suppressant, but it also has some anti-inflammatory, some antimicrobial properties. So it's a great option. The only problem with honey is you can't give it until they turn one because it increases their risk for botulism. If your kid's older than two, you can do some of those mentholated rubs, you know, like the Vicks Vapor Rubs, rub it on their chest. That sometimes helps, too. Cough and cold medicines that you can get over the counter, you know, the AAP recommends not to use those until age six, um, The particularly the cough medicines, which the most common one is dextromethorphan. Um, and then some of the, um, the decongestant medicines as well are in a lot of those, and they're not recommended in that age either, mostly due to the side effects. We don't have a lot of studies to let us know what the appropriate dose would be for kids. So the best thing to do is just to avoid those until age six and just treat supportively. Looks like we have another caller. We have Rebecca from Gulfport. Go ahead, Rebecca. Good morning. I just I wanted to tell you a funny thing that happened when my child was very small. He was about six months old and just coughing his lungs out. Couldn't figure out what. Ran him into the pediatrician. Pediatrician checked him every which way to Tuesday couldn't find anything wrong with them. We come home, the dog starts coughing, and the baby coughs right afterwards. Did, did they catch... The baby, the baby was imitating the dog. Oh, my goodness. That's hilarious. That so is it funny. Co- it costs us $50 to have the pediatrician look it over and another $30 to have the dog treated. Oh, no. That is interesting. That's hilarious. That's so funny. Yeah, babies will definitely try to imitate, especially around six months old when they really start hearing and learning their voice and those sound, how to make those sounds. That's yeah. a really funny story. Live and learn. Uh, yes. I'm glad there was nothing wrong. But that's hilarious. Okay. Thank you for sharing that with us. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Um, so the colds, you know, the, the cough is a very common symptom, speaking of coughs, of the colds. Um, and so we were talking earlier about how cough and cold medicines that you get over the counter really aren't supposed to be using kids younger than age six uh, because they just aren't safe. Uh, we don't know great doses. There's lots of potential side effects from it. So the best thing to do is just tr- treat supportively. And like I was saying earlier, honey is a great option for a cough. There's actually been some studies that show that honey actually works better than dextromethorphan, which is the most common cough medicine that you're going to see in over-the-counter medicines um, in children. Not necessarily in adults, but in kids, honey does work better as a cough medicine. And so a lot of the questions people ask is, like, do I need an antibiotic? Um, Most of these colds and upper respiratory infections are going to be caused by a virus. Some reasons you may need an antibiotic would be if you developed a secondary infection. So if you have children, you know ear infections are very common. Um, So some things you can look for would be for them to have the cough and cold symptoms for several days and then all of a sudden to spike a fever or be fussy or grabbing at their ear, that could indicate that they have an ear infection. Those usually come later on into the illness, so you're not going to see them right away. They usually are going to be after a few days of having all the symptoms. Another, and you would need an antibiotic for that. Another reason you may need an antibiotic is for a pneumonia. So some things to look for for a pneumonia. Again, they usually don't happen at the very beginning. It's going to happen a few days after you've had those cough and cold symptoms. And then all of a sudden spike a high fever, have some trouble breathing, um, also may not want to eat and drink as much. Those, those tend to be signs that maybe you develop, you're developing some kind of secondary infection. The other reason is, you know, after you've had symptoms for 10 to 14 days or so and you're still not clearing, uh, there is a chance, you know, that you could have developed some kind of sinus infection, some sinusitis, as we call it. And in that case, you, you may have, again, some kind of secondary infection and may need some antibiotics to help get rid of it. 
But for the most part, if you just give your body time, rest, hydration, you're going to get rid of that infection on your own. Your body can usually fight off those viruses. Um, But if your kid's young, under three months, if they're having any trouble breathing, prolonged symptoms, um, or any concerns that there could be an ear infection or pneumonia or things like that, definitely need to get them taken in to see their doctor. All right, this is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're talking about common questions for your pediatrician, and we'd love to hear your comments or any questions that you may have. Please give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or send us an email at kids at mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Today we're talking about common questions for your pediatrician, for your kid. This can be from an infant all the way to the teenage years. We're kind of talking all three different things. We'd love to hear your questions or comments. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 You can also send us an email at kids at mpbonline.org. We talked earlier about fever. We talked about colds. We've had a couple of great calls. Um, now I was going to talk some about constipation. That seems to be a question for everybody from babies all the way till they get older is um, problems with constipation and, and bowel patterns for kids. So just like it does for adults, it can vary from child to child. Most kids are going to go about one to two times a day, but some can go two to three days without having a bowel movement. And that's OK. Um, you know, as long as kids are going every two to three days, their bowel movements are still soft, they're comfortable, it's fine. There's not necessarily, you don't need any intervention. Now, if they, you know, go two to three days without a bowel movement, or if they still go every day, but they're very hard, um, they're difficult to pass, sometimes they have pain with passing the bowel movement, the stool, um, sometimes they'll have some abdominal pain as well. So uh, those can all be signs of constipation. Um, And that's when you do want to treat because there are some things that happen with especially uh, little ones and babies. You know, they can get little fissures. Sometimes you may see blood when you wipe um, just from them having the hard stools and the constipation. Um, Don't see hemorrhoids as much in kids, but they are definitely a possibility. Um, I would say the fissures are probably going to be more common. Um, And we actually see that probably about once a week in the um, pediatric office, kids having those. 
Um, but yeah, constipation is a very common complaint. So kids are notorious for it because uh, they hold and don't go into the bathroom. Um, that can be for a number of reasons for kids, uh, like little ones and toddlers. And as they get a little bit older, it's more because they don't just want to st- stop playing. They want to continue playing and it's too much trouble to stop and go to the bathroom. So we see that kind of a trend as you get older. Um, it's more because they hold it because they don't want to go in certain places like at school or at public places. So um, constipation is a problem for babies all the way up to teenagers and sometimes even adults as well. Um, some ways that uh, the other another big cause is decreased fiber in the diet. Um, people, some people, t- picky eaters, especially toddlers, tend to not get enough fiber in their diet. And that can definitely cause it as well. Um, some things that you can do. Uh, for little ones, you know, there's not a ton we can do. we got to be real careful with our medicines. So one thing you can do is get a glycerin suppository. Um, everybody knows what a suppository is, but it basically is just give them an, a little stimulation. They don't usually need the whole suppository, so you can break it in half. Um, usually it doesn't even take much. Just a little bit of stimulation down there gets children moving. Um, for older than four months old, you can give them a little juice. Apple juice, prune juice, they have, contain some sugars that are difficult to digest. And so that tends to cause some osmotic, like pulling the water in and making them go to the bathroom a little more. Um, if they get six months or older, you can even do a little Miralax. I wouldn't do very much. Um, and you can talk to your doctor exactly about how much they can do because a lot of times we base everything on weight for children and their di- their doses of their medicines. So I would definitely talk to your doctor. But once they hit six months, it's okay to do a little Miralax. We don't really like to do the Cairo syrup. Um, that's a big thing that people like to use um, if we can avoid it. Um, so these are some safe options that you can do for your kids. Um, as you get old, as the kids get older, especially as they're eating food and they're all formula and they're eating what you're eating, you can always try to make sure that you increase their fiber in their diet. There's different ways that you can do that. And you can always Google, um, foods to increase fiber because you can find all kinds of stuff on the internet about increased fiber in your diet. Um, but make sure when you increase the fiber that you're also making sure they're drinking lots of water and staying hydrated as well. Um, Miralax also works really well. That's probably our go-to medicine for kids as they get older, just because it's easier. I don't I don't know if everybody's familiar with Miralax, but it's a powder that you get, and you can mix it in pretty much anything. You can mix it in water, milk, um, juice, whatever you want to mix it in. Um, and you can't taste it. So that tends to work really well in kids because the minute they can taste that medicine, they don't want to take it anymore. So most of the time, kids don't even know they have Miralax because if you mix it in the right drink... You can't ever even taste it and even know. So that's going to be kind of our go-to medicine um, for the constipation. So we'll move on to another topic, but give us a call if you can and share your comments and questions with us. We're talking about common questions for your pediatrician. Um, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can always email us too at kids at mpbonline.org. Another big question for the pediatrician is headaches. I feel like headaches is a very common complaint from kids. Um, When kids don't want to do something, when kids don't want to go to bed, um, if they're stressed, if they're tired, different things like that. Headache is going to be the most common thing that a kid complains about. Headaches and 
when they're trying to get out of things. But headaches can also be uh, a sign that something else could be going on. So it's always good. I always try to talk to the parents about what are signs that they should look for with kids complain of headaches that would make you go get them checked out. So there's a few things. So um, if the headache wakes you up in the morning, so, you know, most of the time headaches happen at the end of the day. Um, if you talk to most people that have headaches, they happen at the end of the day. It can happen all throughout the day, but the early morning headaches are the one that we worry about um, because that means when you lay down at night, uh, you're automatically getting a little bit of increased pressure from that fluid in your surrounding your brain. Um, but if there was anything going on in your brain, such as a it increases the pressure even more when you lay down. So waking up in the middle of the night, waking up early in the morning with headaches um, could be could be a warning sign. It doesn't necessarily mean there's anything going up there, but that is something that kind of triggers us when we hear that. Um, the other thing is vomiting. Now, you know, there are certain types of headaches, migraines in particular, that you can have some nausea and vomiting with. Um, but this is more vomiting when you don't necessarily feel nauseated. Um, so again, that kind of goes back to the whole increased pressure in your head. Is there something going on there? And then, of course, if you have any um, neurologic symptoms, so vision changes, dizziness, numbness or tingling anywhere, um, you know, we would definitely need to go get checked out by your doctor. And then, of course, if you have fever um, and, uh, you know, a lot of times the fever, that can just be a nonspecific sign of just the kid not feeling well with the fever. But it also could be a sign that something else could be going on, particularly if they have pain with their neck. You know, meningitis is one of the things that we always worry about with fever, headaches, neck pain. Uh, meningitis is not common, but it still does happen. And so those are some things to look for. Again, all of those symptoms do not necessarily mean there could there is something going on in your head, but it is a concerning sign, and you definitely should get checked out by your doctor to make sure. Um, the most common types of headaches that we see are going to be like tension headaches, the ones where you get kind of that dull aching in the back of your head, maybe kind of aches in your neck a little bit. Those muscles around in the back of your neck tend to get kind of tight and contracted. The other main type of headache we see is migraines. Migraines are a little going to be a little bit different than the tension headaches. Those usually happen more on one side than the other, but it can happen on both sides. And it's usually in your temporal region, so up by your temples. Um, with the migraines, you know, like I said earlier, you can get nauseated and vomit with the migraines. Um, another hallmark is light and sound tend to make it worse. So you'll talk to people that have migraines and they just have to be in a dark, quiet room with their head under the covers because any little bit of light can make that worse. Um, they're kind of different way. I mean, they're caused by different things, tension, headaches and migraines are. So we treat them a little differently, uh, differently, but we also treat them similarly with uh, NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. That's just a type of medicine and it is like ibuprofen or Motrin or Aleve, Naproxen, those medicines tend to work pretty well for both tension headaches and migraines. But there are some specific medicines that we do use for migraines because we migraines tend to are caused by the uh, changes in the blood vessels in the brain. And so we have some medicines that are actually geared to treat just that. Um, so migraines have do have some medicines that tend to work better for those. But those anti-inflammatories, those NSAIDs, tend to work well for both, actually. There are some just kind of supportive things that you can do for the headaches. You know, you can do... Um, 
just getting lots of sleep, number one, helps a lot. Um, And drinking lots of water, that can make a big difference as well. Massage, especially for those tension headaches, massage therapy tends to work pretty well for that. Um, Acupuncture, which is... um, a little different, but it does tend to help with headaches sometimes. Um, and so if you you know wanted to try some more natural things. Um, and there's some supplements, too, and you can talk to your doctor about that. But um, riboflavin, which is a B vitamin, it's vitamin B2. And magnesium are two things that we I tell my patients all the time to get on those supplements. Um, they really do tend to help headaches, especially if you're drinking lots of water and you're getting lots of sleep, you can notice some improvement. Some other ones are going to be CoQ10 and Butterbur. Those are common over-the-counter things that you can get, natural supplements. But um, it's always a good thing to talk to your doctor about it, especially before you start any of these supplements. Um just to make sure most of them are going to be safe and not have any interactions. But it's always a good thing to talk to your doctor about, too. Most of the time, just talking to your doctor, they can tell you what kind of headaches you're having and how to treat them based off of just examining you and talking to you. Sometimes we do need to get pictures of your head with a CT or an MRI, depending on what they feel like. Um, But most of the time, just talking to your doctor, they can give you a lot of information about your headaches. Um, Looks like we have another caller. We have Craig in Biloxi. Go ahead, Craig. Yes. Uh, what about nasal discharge and the different colors and the r- little rubber ball that to uh, to clean them out? Is it recommended or even necessary? Yeah. So um, nasal discharge can it can change colors even if it is just a virus. That doesn't necessarily mean you have a bacterial infection and you need antibiotics. So what gives that nasal discharge that nasal congestion colors? is actually the debris and the white blood cells that are fighting off the infection. So it's a good sign. Can Well, I say it can be a good sign that it's changing colors because that means that your body's fighting it off. Those white blood cells are there trying to fight off that infection, and that's what gives it a color. Um, sometimes you may even see a little bit of blood in there because it is, can get a little swollen and irritated, especially if you're blowing your nose a lot. Those, little, those blood vessels in your nose are very small and easy to bleed. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that you need an antibiotic for it. Um, but I would, you know, if it's been going on for 10 to 14 days or so, you may consider going, you know, getting an antibiotic for it. But just a color change itself does not necessarily mean it's a bacterial infection. Um, I'm not, what, I'm not sure what ball you're talking about. Is that just like the bulb suction? Yeah, they have little squeeze balls, especially for infants. I see uh, a lot. Of, a lot of people want to want to remove that with yes. the squeeze ball. Yes, yes, yes. That's exactly what we tell people to do because there isn't much that we can do for our little ones. No medicine, so that's going to be the safest thing. Um, using sometimes. A lot of times it's just pouring out and you can just use the suction and get a bunch out. Sometimes as time goes on and the symptoms have been going on for a while, you'll notice that it tends to get a little bit harder to get some of that out. It's drying up a little bit. So we tell people to use saline drops and you can get saline drops over the counter. They make them for kids. They come in a different variety that just drops. They also make some aerosol sprays that sometimes are easier to use. Um, But that'll help break up some of that congestion so that you can use those bulb suctions and get more of that out of their nose. So so it is recommended to to remove it. Yes. Now, you even from even from infants. Yes, sir. That's about all we have to to help with the with the infants. Um, So, yes, that's okay. And most of the time you get those when you leave the hospital. Actually, they usually give you those um, with the babies. Um, Okay. 
for adults now, you know, you were taught that we use the saline for the little ones, but you can also do saline flushes for adults as well. They have the, you know, the neti pod and there's all different kinds of brands out there that do the saline flushes for the adults as well. Okay, that's it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're talking today about common questions for your pediatrician, all the way from babies all the way to the teenagers. We can even answer some of your questions for adults as well. So give us a call. We'd love to hear your comments and any questions you may have. 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. And today we've been talking about common questions for your pediatrician. Um, we've kind of went through a variety of different things. Uh, we'd love to hear any of your questions or comments that you may have, uh, not necessarily about anything we've talked about. If you have any sp- other questions that you want to ask us, we're available and we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 You can also send us an email at kids at mpbonline.org. So we've talked about a bunch of different things from fever to colds to constipation, headaches. Um, If there's any other specific uh, topics that y'all want to discuss, please give us a call and let us know or send us an email and we can maybe discuss it at our next um, radio show. Uh, But, you know, we've talked a lot about fever and how to handle fever and what to do when your child has fever, when to take them to the doctor. Same thing with colds, headaches. Um, One other topic I was going to get into if we have enough time is um, formula, because that tends to be a big question that we get from parents um, regarding babies and what kind of formula, when to switch formula, do, do they need another formula? Um, and we can get to that in just a second, but it looks like we may have another caller. We have Julia. Go ahead, Julia. I want to ask you a question about using mosquito repellents on the infant. This child is uh, one years old. Yes, ma'am. It is fine to use this mosquito repellent. Um, actually, you can use it all the way down to two months of age. You know, we, we recommend not using it until they're at least two months old. But after that, you can. Um, usually what I tell parents, and it is OK for the um, mosquito repellent to contain DEET in it. DEET is going to be the best at keeping um, protecting you from different biting insects. Um, so most all of those are going to have DEET. What I usually tell parents to do is, you know, you don't want to necessarily spray them down because they will inhale a lot of it, especially if it's a little one. I usually tell them to spray it in their hands so they can get it on their hands, and then they can rub it in the exposed areas of the children. Um, you know, keeping them covered up, too, with long sleeves and pants, that's going to help as well. But any of the exposed areas, it's totally okay to put it on your hands 
and rub them down. Um, and as they get older, it's okay to spray it as well. Uh, most of the time, those are going to last for pretty a good bit of hours, probably four or six hours or so. And so you usually don't have to reapply it. So usually a one time is enough. Does that answer your question? All right. So I was going to talk real quickly about infant formula because I feel like that's a pretty um, common question we get asked a lot in the in the clinic. Um, you know, of course, we're going to recommend to breastfeed. That is uh, going to be this, the healthiest for the child, but that's not always an option for some people. And that's okay. It's okay to give the, your child formula. So there's lots of different formulas out there. Um, and uh, most of them are going to be based off of cow's milk protein, which because that's what our breast milk is based off of as well. So most of the formulas are going to be cow's milk based, and most kids do just fine with the natural formulas. But there are some uh, formulas out there that tend to have those broken those proteins broken down a little bit more to help kids digest them a little bit easier. Because just like everything is very immature in the kids, their gut is also going to be very immature. So, um, and some of those are going to be like the Genolese or the Similac sensitive. Those are kind of the two most common ones we tend to see. And sometimes they are needed. Um, kids that tend to have a milk protein intolerance, not necessarily an allergy, but an intolerance or real gassy and fussy, sometimes they tend to do a little bit better in those formulas. Before you switch to one of those formulas, we'd like you to give the babies a little bit of time because most of the time it's just from the immature gut. You know, it takes them a little bit before their bodies get used to that and taking in that formula. After a few weeks, most of the time that gas and fussiness gets better, but sometimes it doesn't and sometimes it does require you to go to one of those different um, formulas that are broken down a little bit to take that off of the baby. There are some that are even broken down even more so that the babies are completely, the protein's pretty much completely broken down because the baby is actually allergic to the milk protein. Um, and those are the babies that are truly allergic, have the bloody stools from the protein, um, from the formula. If your baby's going to need to be on one of those, they definitely need to be followed by a pediatrician, sometimes even a GI specialist as well. Soy formulas are ones that people ask a lot about. If you have an allergy to the protein that's in the, for the milk protein formula, um, soy formula is actually not the best for that um, because there's a lot of cross-reactivity for those allergies. And most of the time, if you're allergic to the milk protein, you're going to be allergic to the soy as well. Um, so a lot of times soy... We don't really use soy a ton unless they, um, well, sometimes there's some enzyme deficiencies where they actually can't break down those carbohydrates and so they have to use soy. Sometimes we'll use soy after you have like a bad stomach bug because it tends to irritate the stomach lining and they can't actually digest that uh, lactose that's in the cow's milk protein and so soy may be a good option then. But most of the time, if it's just for fussiness and gas, soy is not going to be the answer. It doesn't usually always fix it. Now, there are some kids that respond really well to it, but I would say most of the time, soy is not always the answer. It's usually one of those formulas that the protein is going to be broken down a little bit more. Um, we have lots of information and uh, formula that we can talk more about, but it, we're running out of time. So if you have any questions, give us an email, kids at mpbonline.org, and we can discuss it at our next radio show. Um, this has been Southern Remedy, Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. It's a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from listeners like you. 
please, uh, I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod. Join us next Thursday at 11 for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. And stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio.